I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. My guest on the program today is author Bianca Murray. Let me tell you a little bit about Bianca Murray. Born and raised in South Africa, Johannesburg had been her home all her life. But one day, she turned to her husband and said, we should move. And he turned back to her and said, you're right. So they packed their suitcases, got their pets together, and made their way to Toronto. That was in 2012. Although Bianca had been writing her whole life, she decided to study it in a more official capacity. So she enrolled in the University of Toronto's SCS Creative Writing Program. It was there that she started to work on her novel, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words. An excerpt from that book was a finalist in the Penguin Random House Student Award for Fiction in 2013. On a bit of a hot streak, a year later, a short story she wrote called The Savages Among Us was published in a crime anthology called World Enough and Crime. Her debut novel, Hum, If You Don't Know the Words, came out in 2017. And not only is it one of the most remarkable books I've read in recent years, it is truly one of the great debut novels of all time. But don't take my word for it. The Globe and Mail selected it as one of its best books of 2017. And Bianca was chosen by Library Journal as one of the writers to watch. Now, the reviews came in, and they were glowing. O, which is the Oprah magazine, in case, in case you didn't know that, you're like, why is Oprah on the cover of that magazine every month? Well, because she owns it. Uh, o Magazine declared, Hum, if you don't know the words, is radiant, a stirring ode to a country's painful maturation. USA Today called the novel richly drawn. The characters' journeys and eventual love poignantly demonstrate that nothing is simply black or white. The Toronto Star added with the rave reviews, it's a rousing quest for redemption. Hum, if you don't know the words, is both delightful and deadly serious. And the Globe and Mail said comparisons to The Help and The Secret Life of Bees are apt, and fans of those two novels should immediately add it to their must-read lists. But you know what? Authors were raving as well. Terry McMillian, the New York Times best-selling author of Waiting to Exhale and I Almost Forgot About You, said, Hum, if you don't know the words, is an important contribution to literature about racism in South Africa. It's a powerful story and one with a perspective many of us haven't read. Also, Rebecca Wells, the author of The Crown and Glory of Kala Lily Ponder and Divine Secrets of the Aya Sisterhood, God, she has long titles. She said, Bianca Murray's compassionate debut paints a picture of the alternately beautiful and tragic strategies we humans employ to meet our needs for love. Hum, if you don't know the words, takes us into the human heart's wiliness as it attempts to survive the frontal attack of racism. While the attack is a sin, the response is wondrous and wounding, and an illustration of the resiliency that can transcend the color of a person's skin. This, my friends, is a great book. If you haven't read it, you should read it immediately. Go get it. It's an open wound of a book. It's unreasonably beautiful, painful, and just utterly marvelous. Bianca Murray is a incredibly talented author, and she writes with humanity, grace, finesse, and muscle. I don't know if you can tell, but I love this book, and I love Bianca. So she came out to Oakland about a year ago at the very beginning of her tour for the novel. And we did a live event at a bookstore called A Great Good Place for Books in Montclair. 
I interviewed Bianca in front of a live studio audience. It was a pretty packed house that night, and uh, we had a blast. We had such a great time. The conversation was so great, and we really hit it off. The only thing I was bummed about was I didn't tape it. We should have recorded it, is what I was thinking, because it was such a great conversation. So I dropped her a line, and I was like, hey, what do you say we do a part two? And she was totally up for it, and you're about to hear part two of a part one that you'll never hear because there is no record of it. But uh, we do reference the conversation a little bit, and uh, we pick up right where we left off. And we cover a lot of ground from censorship in South Africa to uh, watching pirated versions of different strokes. Uh, we, we, definitely, we definitely hit a lot of subjects. The only thing we didn't talk about was the fact that Bianca was once bitten by a giraffe. I forgot to ask her about that. We'll do that in part three. Hum, If You Don't Know the Words, is out in early March in paperback. And Bianca's new novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh, will be out in the spring of 2019. But enough of my going on and on and on. Let's have a chat, shall we? This is me and Bianca Murray breaking it down. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. do in the cold do you like it or do you prefer the warmth? Oh, i love it no i love it i absolutely love it all the canadians hate me because i i tell them how much i love the cold so they blame me every time it gets cold but uh yeah it's, it's stunning it's nice to have four seasons you know i like how you get blamed for the cold well yeah because i love it so the minute it starts snowing and i'm outside with a big fat smile on my face and everyone's like you know, muttering darkly under their breath because the ridiculous South African probably brought it on with her love of the snow. <laughs> <laughs> these these South Africans are so powerful; they can control the weather. Exactly, exactly. Look, the South Africans now got their president out, which means they are finally getting a bit of power. So that's good. Well, hopefully, it'll rub off on the Americans. Yeah, God, we can only hope, right? You must be looking at our country with horror. Yeah, the sad thing is that I, I mean, I am obviously, but there's also parts of me that are, you know, you're just used to the way that this is the way the world works. And I mean, the fact that, I mean, you and I spoke about it before, the fact that my book that's based on something that happened 40 years ago across the world is so relevant now, it just proves time and again, we just we're not learning from history, you know? We're just doomed to keep repeating the past, it seems, which is depressing as it will help, but yeah. Yeah. That seems to be a flaw in in human nature, because if you do, if you look back, you can see all these patterns where you go, boy, you should have caught on the first time. Exactly, exactly. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, we can only hope that I mean, you you will know better than anyone what the hell is going to be happening there. I mean, as Canadians, we just watch and we're like, oh, crap, you know. But, I mean, what we had before wasn't great either, you know. So, and, I mean, we just saw it happening in South Africa now. This, this, the, pen, the pendulum swings, you know, and people can only take so much shit before they, you know, refuse to take any more. And it, unfortunately, takes a long time. But when it does shift, it shifts completely. And, I mean, we can only hope for that in the U.S. Is there a lot of optimism uh, about the new the new uh, person in South Africa? Yeah, yeah, hugely. I mean, because Jacob Zuma just he was a leech. I mean, it was just terrible. He was he was this parasite that was just leeching the country of resources, 
Um, you know, they'd proven state capture. He was in it just for himself. And, you know, when you come from having Nelson Mandela before that, well, a few presidents before that, you know, to, to swing to that is just, it's scary. I mean, this man was only out for himself, how much money he could make, and the disparity between the rich and the poor just widened and widened. And now you have someone in there who said that he's going to uh, root out corruption. He's putting his foot down on that. He's, I think he's going to hold Zuma accountable for, for his crimes uh, during his presidency. Uh, and, and this man is a brilliant strategist. He's you know, a very good um, negotiator. He, he's been deputy president. He was a huge part of the ANC and was involved with Nelson Mandela. So, yeah, you know, people are extremely, extremely positive. And, uh, I mean, I, I, many of us didn't think that the day would come that we would finally get Zuma out, and that's now happened. So, you know, and, and that's the first step. So let's hope it's the first step in the right direction. Well, it's funny because when you say he was in it for himself and he wanted to see how much money he could make, that sounds suspiciously like Mr. Trump. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, it's and not just for himself, but for a certain, you know, demographic of the population. He and his cohorts, um, you know, it was in it for himself and them. And that's all that they looked out for. And to hell with anybody else who didn't fit into that you know, that, that whole niche. Um, and, and that's the scary part. I mean, as a president, you absolutely cannot just be out for yourself and, um, you know, just not being able to look past your own wealth and your own privilege, which is exactly what Jacob Zuma was doing as well. I mean, he built this huge fortress-type uh, house right next to where people are living in, in squatter camps. I mean, these are people who are living in shacks who have no running water, no electricity, and right next door, he builds this ginormous, ginormous compound for his how many wives and his how many children so that he could live like a king. And you can't be in touch with your people if that's how you're living. You just can't. It's funny because... Again, that, like Trump. <laughs> like, exactly, just like Trump. That sounds like you could be talking about, like, an Egyptian pharaoh. Like, you know, it, that yeah. could be, like, the same story we've seen thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah. And like we said, like, doomed to keep repeating the same mistakes. And the problem is... In a country like South Africa, when you have huge mistrust, you know, a lot of people were saying, oh, why why would black people vote for the ANC if the ANC is headed by Jacob Zuma and he's just bad for them and he's not, you know, improving their lives and their situation? But, of course, you come from a history of apartheid. These people are going to be very distrustful of white people. They're going to be very distrustful of white parties. And so rather the devil you know than the devil you don't, so keep someone in power who's, you know, who you perceive to be not racist, who you perceive to be not out to get you, as has historically happened in South Africa's history. But, you know, so it, it took a change within its own party, uh, which, yeah, I mean, we don't think that's ever going to happen with the Republicans because the change has got to come within their own party. These people have got to say, we've had enough, you know. The emperor is not wearing any clothes. No, no. But it makes me it makes me wonder how much of what we do politically is informed by history, and sometimes it's a lot, and sometimes it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it feels to me it should really be a lot more. You know, um, you think, but but I mean, new regimes learn from the old ones. I mean, it it was. To me, when, when I was researching my book, it scared the hell of me to realize that the apartheid government 
uh, sent delegates into Germany to try and learn from the Nazis. They sent delegates to Canada to learn from the whole residential school system. Um, so, you know, instead of viewing it as this warning, they view it as inspiration. Like, what did they do right? How can we, how can we incorporate this into the way we want to do things? Uh, how can we do it better than they did? Which to me is just mind-blowingly horrific. Was a great portion of what you learned when you researched your book. A lot of that stuff had been was kind of news to you. Mm. Yeah, because you know, South Africa at the time there was huge censorship of the press. Um, the the apartheid government. There was so much propaganda. So as South Africans, you know, South Africans knew to a degree what was going on, but they didn't know the extent of it. So, for example, the day of the Soweto uprising when that occurred. Uh, how it was reported internationally were the true events of what was happening, that the South African police opened fire on thousands of schoolchildren, killing more than 100 of them in what was a peaceful protest. But in South Africa, what was reported was that these black savages turned on the police, uh, were violent, um, and the police reacted in self-defense, and so it went. So, yeah, when I was researching... um, apartheid, you know, as the backdrop to the book, I mostly relied on international press. And um, yeah, it was was shocking to me. I mean, I was still a child when this happened, so I would have been shocked anyway. But some of the things I found out uh, and spoke to people about, people who were older than me, they were also shocked by it. Uh, And that's another thing that's happening with Trump in that, you know, trying to uh, curtail who's allowed to come to press conferences, who's allowed to ask questions. You know, the minute the, the press gets censored or gets curtailed in any way, you have to ask yourself why. Well, it's amazing to watch them try to control and manipulate the narrative and be successful yeah. in some ways. In some ways, they're, they're well, you know... Yeah, the whole fake news thing, you know, that, that in itself has been so scary. How news that factual and fair is being reported as fake news, and then this creates this uh, suspicion of the news, and news sources that should be questioned aren't questioned. questioned. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a nefarious way of doing things. It's like this evil genius, if you, if you, if you think about it, and that's what the apartheid government did as well. It, it was not just stopping the press from being able to report honestly on things, but also splitting people up and turning them against each other so that if they were fighting against each other, they couldn't fight against the apartheid government. And and those are, you know, wounds that run deep, and that'll take hundreds of generations probably to be able to, to work themselves out. And the first thing I always think of when I when I think of your book is I think of the disorder of that of that scene, of that shooting. Um, just yeah. the the fact that everyone gets sort of like uh, like pool balls, they just get sort of scattered and lost yeah. and estranged, and it's it's such a um, a horrifying scene. That that scene that that you wrote is, I mean, to me, it's something I can I can't get out of my brain. Um, I don't know how you captured that moment so beautifully, but it's just it's beautiful and it's in, in its terror, um, but it's so yeah. decidedly accurate. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in Soweto, um, obviously way past apartheid once, you know, apartheid ended. I worked with a non-profit organization there, uh, helping HIV-AIDS um, children and their caregivers. Um, 
And so I spent a lot of time in Soweto where all of this took place. So I was very familiar with the, the, the geography of it and spoke to so many people who were there on the day. Um, and these were adults who were children at the time who were part of the uprising, who got swept along with it. I spoke to the older generation who had no idea that the uprising was going to happen because the younger generation kept them in the dark about it. So, you know, it, it was this 360 view I got of it. And then, of course, from the fact that I'm a white person who was not affected by this at the time, I was able to, you know, step back and look at it from this privileged kind of viewpoint and be horrified by it all over again because it had so little impact on the white people of South Africa at the time. And yet it changed the country's history um, and Soweto was never the same again. Not that it would change anything, but was there ever an apology, like an official apology that was ever declared or issued? I don't think so. It's a really good question, Alex. I honestly don't think so. There was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, it was headed up by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Um, and maybe in that there was some kind of apology issued, but n- not that I'm aware of. Honestly, not that I'm aware of. And again, like, how, how do you honestly apologize for, for that? It would, it would be this, every single person who was complicit in it, every single person who was a part of it, would have to issue a heartfelt apology. And that's where some of my biggest problems with South Africa come in, because so many white South Africans are blinded by their own privilege. They've never had to sit back and confront it. And so they have this thing, this belief that, oh, black people must get over apartheid. It was how many years ago? You can't keep blaming apartheid. And, And they'll tell you that they weren't born rich and they had to fight for everything they have. Uh, because they just don't see it. They don't see how they benefited from it. Um, and so they distance themselves from that. And in terms of a policy, it would, it would have to be, you know, not just the government issuing an apology, not just the apartheid government, not just, you know, the, the prime ministers at that time. It, it, would, it would really have to be all South Africans. How has your relationship to your country changed? I mean, you haven't lived there for a couple of years now, right? It's been like three or four years since you've been in Canada. Yeah, yeah, almost almost six years. Okay. I, it's it's complicated because South Africans firmly believe that once you leave South Africa, you lose the right to have an opinion about what's going on in South Africa. Um, it's this, well, you left, so therefore you've sort of betrayed the country, kind of thing, which I can understand. I mean, if you're living there every day, dealing with certain things. Um, you do, you become sensitive about it and, and you do feel that people who've left shouldn't necessarily be speaking about it. I still love South Africa greatly. I, my whole family is there, my friends are there. There are these people who I worked with and volunteered with for years. There are HIV positive children that I've seen growing up in South Africa. And, and I love South Africa fiercely and believe that it deserves so much better than what it's had. Um, and I just, I get really down and depressed when I see people still battling so much and living under a dollar a day, you know, that kind of poverty um, and seeing things not improving. And that's where I, you know, end up feeling very pessimistic about it. But but at the same time now, things are changing. And I do feel very optimistic about the change in government, about the change in the ANC's president, South African president. And, and hope for the sake of the people that this will be a step forward in the right direction. 
Do you think being away has given you a kind of editorial distance, you know, where, uh, a kind of, right, a kind of clarity that you maybe wouldn't have had if you were still there? Yeah. I would never have been able to write the book I did if I was still living in South Africa. I was too much entrenched in that mindset, too much a part of it. Um, and it was only once I left South Africa and I gave myself emotional, physical distance from it, was I able to step back and look at it much more objectively than I ever had. And and living in Toronto, I mean, it's such a diverse, multicultural city, um, so totally different to where I grew up. And that allowed me to look at South Africa as well through a very different lens um, and, and see it warts and all, which is what enabled me to write the book because I... You know, the little white girl in the book, Robin, um, you know, she isn't me, but definitely inspired by me. And, and she's a privileged little brat in, in many ways. <laughs> um, and and I battled to feel empathy for this character for the longest time because I was judging her um, as I looked back on myself and judged myself. Uh, so, so definitely I needed that distance and I view things very, very differently to what I did when, when I was living there. Now, you and I met on the first night of your book tour. Isn't that right? We were the first stop. Um, I don't think it was the first stop. It was very early on. Very, very early on. It was early on. And then you, yes. and it was like a whirlwind tour. And then I know that you have to sort of talk about the same things over and over again, which I know can be a little bit maddening. But what did you learn from yourself in terms of like having to kind of keep going back and, and saying the same um, telling the same stories about the novel you wrote, talking about the architecture around it, the impetus, how long the book yeah. had been germinating. But what did, what was illuminating to you in that process? You know, the, there were certain things I said that was repetition, but that's the amazing thing about being in front of readers and about being in front of people along the way. And, and people in different states and in different cities, uh, their viewpoints vary so, so drastically. You know, uh, sitting with readers, in California is very, very different to sitting with readers in Wisconsin. Um, and and it was in having these dialogues and in talking to people that, you know, in a way I learned to be a bit more empathetic towards my younger self because, as I said, I battled with that character, but most of the readers didn't. They, they felt empathy for her because they could understand that this little girl was a product of her environment. And... And that's something that I was able to see through this whole process, is that if you're a child raised in a country like South Africa, you are brainwashed. That's pretty much what it is. It's brainwashing that happens from a very young age. When you get told by your society, by teachers, by ministers, by you know everyone you respect, that you are an exalted race, um, you are better than other people because of your color, and you are put on this earth to, to pretty much dominate, then it's extremely difficult to grow up and snap out of that kind of thinking. Um, and I found that readers were much more empathetic uh, towards my character than I was, and it, it helped me see that as well. But at the same time, it helped me realize how prejudice, its tentacles stretch so far. You know, it's not just countries like South Africa that have prejudice, whether it's in terms of race or whether it's in terms of sexuality or religion or whatever the case may be is this is such a universal condition um and and every place you go to has its problems and it, it has these issues and so every person is fighting this battle to some degree 
or, or the other. And, and all you can do is to be aware of it, to constantly be aware of the challenges that face you in terms of your mental growth, your emotional growth, and to just keep challenging that. And, and that's just something that opened up for me, for me to realize it was a process um, and beating myself up wouldn't achieve anything um, and, and to use my voice, to be able to say to people, you know, this is where I come from. This is what I've seen. These are the scars that affect my countrymen every day um, and, and, and hope that they will do better. So it was like a kind of, in many ways, a kind of deprogramming. Yeah, very much so. It, it is, you know, when you have these kinds of beliefs that are so uh, rooted in, in your childhood, a lot of the time you don't, you're not even aware of them. Until suddenly somebody says something and it triggers something. And then, like you say, it becomes a deprogramming. It's going, well, this is something I always believed. Um, it's pretty shameful. But now that I think about it and I bring it to life, and to life, and that was the thing for me, is being able to admit my racism and to say, yes, it is a shameful thing, but only if I allow it to continue. Because there's nothing shameful in being a child who's raised in this environment and growing up this way, in this way you taught. That is how all children grow up. But, and there's no shame in that. And, and for me, I think I was finally able to say to myself, you know what, I have been a racist. And there's no shame in that. I would rather expend my energy saying, I have been a racist, and I admit that, and I'm trying to change, and I'm growing, and I'm learning, then use all my energy denying it and going, well, I'm not racist, but... Um, so definitely a, a deprogramming. And it's something that I think more white people uh, need to go through. It's a process we need to go through. And that's actually, to me, that is one of... you know, America is so... Um, we're, we're so quick to say, hey, look at us. We're post-racial, which is ridiculous. Um, but, right. but what you're describing, to me, is actually a really great way to conceive of how racism can really ultimately come close to being post-racial is that kind of awareness, that kind of turn inside your soul that makes you understand something about yourself that maybe you didn't understand. Um, it, yeah. it comes from, it sounds silly, but it has to come from within like that. Definitely. It's, it's being able to say to yourself, there's this stigma of this thing, you know, being racist, there's a stigma against it, there absolutely should be. But saying to yourself, you know, I I admit this about myself and it's it's not nice holding up this mirror to myself and seeing this thing I don't like, but rather admit it and work past the shame of it and move on to becoming a better person, then use all of your energy hiding this part of yourself and denying it, which doesn't benefit anyone. Um, and that's me. You know, when people say, oh, I'm not racist, uh, but this, I'm not racist, but that... I firmly believe we are now all on the spectrum of racism. You know, obviously, growing up in South Africa, your spectrum of racism is, is much, much higher than someone who hasn't grown up in that kind of environment. But we all hold these deep-rooted beliefs, these prejudices uh, based on stereotypes, based on whatever. And, um, yeah, I think if, if we confront them and, and we admit to them and we move past them, constantly realizing it's a process, I think, I think we can reach that, that era. You know, what was fun is when, when you and I got together, it was at close to the beginning of the tour, and we were thinking, hey, I wonder what's going to happen with this book. I wonder how it's going to be received. And now, all this time later, uh, now you know how it was received. Did it, yeah. did it surprise you that it was received the way that it was? 
Um, no, in certain elements it did. I think I think there's a demographic in South Africa who hasn't liked the book, um, who sort of stopped reading it because it made them feel uncomfortable. Wow. Uh, and and I did expect that. I, I did expect that. So I've had some feedback from that demographic that they feel I've been a bit traitorous um, in the book, and you know, knowing how people can delude themselves and how much energy goes into self-denial, I, you know, I did sort of expect that. In terms of the North American market, I, I, was, I was surprised by how people responded to it in a way that allowed them to challenge their own prejudices. You know, you don't, you, when you write a book, you really, really hope that it's going to connect with people. You know, you hope it's going to find its audience and, and really, really connect with them. But I've had people... Um, I had one couple, for example, in um, Ann Arbor, I think, and it was a South African couple, an older Jewish South African couple, and they sat there the whole time I was speaking, and they sat with their arms folded, uh, very defensive body language. They sort of were glaring at me the whole time I was speaking, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, these people are going to have a lot to say to me afterwards. Clearly, I've offended them, so be it. And after everyone had checked me and left, the woman came up to me, and she just burst into tears. And she said to me, oh, my God, you know, you are speaking to me about my maid when I was growing up, how my maid was treated, how my mother treated her, how how much it horrified me. And it just unleashed something in her that was cathartic. And, and I've had that with other readers, and that surprised me, um, that they've, you know, confessed their own insta- instances of racism, whether it was in the South, uh, across the U.S., in, in other countries. Uh, and that, to me... That to me was surprising, and it was also really, really encouraging that it struck a chord. I was following the journey of your tour and of the book um, through social media, and it was gathering steam everywhere you went. Was that something that you were sensing, like that it was getting through to people? Um, you know what? I wouldn't. I mean, there's, there's certain books that just explode, and and Hum hasn't been one of those. It, it hasn't been this huge phenomenon. Um, Etc. But it's quietly now, I find it's now finding its audience, which that is something that for me has been really gratifying in that people read it, they recommend it to someone else. And without it ever being on bestseller lists or, you know, making huge waves in terms of press and publicity, that it's quietly finding its audience. And that, you know, how many months after the book launched, people are saying to me, this book was recommended to me by a bookseller or by a reader. Um, and I picked it up and I absolutely loved it and I'm now recommending it to someone else. Uh, and that to me is really encouraging because I think post-Trump in terms of book sales, I think most people were going for escapism. Honestly, I think the genres that were selling really well post-Trump were, you know, romance, fantasy, anything that was that would take the reader out of what they were experiencing. You know, reading about apartheid and, and, and that wasn't really what people were rushing to read at that time because if they're experiencing it every day in their own country, why do they want to read about it in someone else's country? Um, but that to me is the gratifying part, that that it is speaking to people and quietly news of it is spreading it, and that's extremely encouraging because I think with a lot of novels, you know, they'll come out, there'll be a bang, and then it fades to a whimper. Um, and I'm really hoping that's not the fate of Hunt. I hadn't even thought about how it was doing in South Africa. So was, was the reaction there fairly polarized? 
Uh, yeah, it depends on what demographic you speak to, because again, South Africa is so diverse. I mean, you have, you know, the Afrikaners, you have the English, and then you have the whole black po- population as well. Um, and initially, it wasn't really going to be brought out in South Africa. I think the publisher in South Africa said, oh, they've done apartheid stories many, many times. They don't really feel that they need to do more apartheid stories. And then I think uh, readers started walking into bookshops and requesting the book. Um, And that is then when bookstores started stocking it. And I've now been invited to two very big book fairs and literary festivals in South Africa in May, uh, which I'm really, really looking forward to. And it'll be interesting then to see you know, what the feedback is then, because there haven't been reviews from South Africa. Um, all my feedback from South Africa has come from readers, and, and they've either absolutely loved it, or I've had them just say, oh, no, you know, you're a traitor to your country, you've thrown the Afrikaners under the bus, uh, which I absolutely, in my opinion, did not do. Uh, you know, as a writer, you need to faithfully represent um, a period or a place or, or characters and I felt that I did faithfully represent that. And there were good Afrikaners and there were bad Afrikaners. And that's exactly how it was during apartheid. Um, and if anybody came off looking, you know, bad, it, it was white South Africans. And I'm a part of that. Um, so, you know, own your history. Own, own, own your history. And also, you and I talked about J.M. Kotzer. Is that how you pronounce the last name? A big uh, J.M. Kutsia, yes. Kutsia, right. Did he face similar backlash for some of his novels as well? Uh, you know what, he, I, my understanding, and I could be wrong, Alex, is that he was not published in South Africa a lot of the time during apartheid. Okay. Um, right. So I think uh, his work wasn't published during the apartheid years, at least some of it. Um, and, and he then was publishing abroad. So, and then after the end of apartheid is when he became more popular to South Africans. I mean, I never read his work you know, when I was in school, I never read it as, you know, something that was prescribed to us, and it should have been. So, yeah, I think like a lot of South Africans, he was, you know, not being published in his own country at the time. One of the things I think Americans really don't understand is just how much the South African government was controlling the media. Oh, yeah. It was so, so... I mean, South Africa only got television in 1976. Oh, my God. I mean, that is just crazy. You know, I tell Canadians and Americans, and they don't believe me. But think about it. If you're this government who is trying to create this very insular, like this microcosmic society that is very racist, that that is uh, dependent on the government for news, for you know, it's worldview, the worst thing you can do is introduce television because this opens people's views. It expands their whole their whole worldview. So even when South Africa did get television, there were it was for very few hours a day, the government chose which obviously which shows were on, etc. Um, and the very interesting part is in South Africa there was something called BOP TV, Baputswana was one of the homelands in South Africa at the time. And they had their own uh, television station. And we could pick up their television station if we put up these intricate bunny ear things. And they used to have a lot of black shows on Bob TV because it was a black homeland. So that is how we got exposed to different strokes 
um, <laughs> to, you know, shows with Blackbird Jefferson. I mean, and here for the first time, South Africans were seeing shows with black people in it, black people who were, you know, just shown to be normal people um, who weren't these repressed people who had lives, who had businesses, who had careers, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. And, and obviously, this is not something they wanted us to have access to because these weren't shows they were showing on South African television, but these were things that started to widen South Africa's you know, view of the world. It's really interesting to think that Different Strokes was a kind of like cultural shoehorn into understanding uh, and sort of humanizing uh, the black experience, right. right, the black persona. Right. I mean, you look at Different Strokes now and you're like, oh, there's issues with it, you know? Yeah. But for, for, you know, for South Africans at the time, you were like, wow, this white guy has adopted these black kids and they're going to school and they're so funny. And, you know, it was just, it was just like mind-blowing for us as South Africans. Um, Webster as well, that was also one of it. I mean, it was just, these things were crazy. And, and it's because our press was so censored. Our, you know, our history textbooks were so edited in terms of, you know, how history had played out. Um, everything, magazines, everything, what was playing on the radio. There, there were so many censored songs. There were so many books that were censored. So, you know, very, very um, insular society. It also must have given you a really strange idea about black people in America with Webster and different strokes. You must have thought all black people were four feet tall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what, what fascinated me is that South Africans at that time could watch things like the Cosby's, they could watch different strokes, they could watch all these things, and they would love these characters. They would love the Jeffersons. Absolutely love them, but they would remain the most racist people. And if you challenge them on it and go, well, how can you love, you know, this or that, but yet you treat the, uh, the black people in your country so badly, they would go, oh, no, no, American blacks are nothing like South African blacks because they are educated and look at them, they're clean and they dress well and they have money. And you're like, well, whose fault is it that South African black people do not have that? Right. Like, it's your fault. Right. You know, but, but honestly, this is the way they would see it. Oh, no, no, no. You can't compare, you know, American blacks to South African blacks. So this is crazy. The thinking was just crazy. And it's funny because if you think about Webster and Different Strokes, they were both so, as you said, problematic in the sense that they didn't trust those characters to be black on their own. They had to be integrated with, with white people. Absolutely, yeah. And and it was like this, you know, white savior narrative as well. I mean, right. Mr. Drummond saved them, you know, and was looking after them with his wealth, et cetera, et cetera. So, so definitely now I would look at these shows and, you know, it would be so problematic. Um, but just to see black people and white people mixing, I think it was in the Jeffersons where there was there was an intermarried, there was an interracial couple, yeah, I think. that's right. Yeah. And, I mean, this was mind-blowing for South Africans, that there would be this, you know, white person and black person and that they would be married because that was illegal in South Africa at that time. Any kind of mingling between the races, completely illegal. And yet here you saw these, these people behaving in these ways. Um, and I definitely think that it was, you know, television um, in, in 76, along with uh, the Soweto Uprising, all these things together started eroding that whole apartheid regime, slowly but surely. And it must have seemed to you, to see shows like, like that, it must have seemed so punk rock 
uh, you know, so revolutionary. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, and, and here we would tune in with these little bunny ears that, you know, your neighbors couldn't see, that you'd sort of hang off the, the TV to get the best reception, and you'd watch it with your curtains closed, and it would be like, you know, you'd feel like the subversive person watching these things. It was like you're watching porn or something. You right, know? yeah. It was like, oh, my God, look at this. Look what happens in the rest of the world. Look, look what's going on out there, you know? Very rock and roll. I do like thinking, though, that it's it's kind of funny in a weird way to think that part of the way towards a post-apartheid uh, world in South Africa began with different strokes. It's, it just sort yeah. of makes me makes me laugh. But it, it just shows you how these small influences can have such a big impact. Because as well, you know, there were all these sanctions placed on South Africa for the longest time. Um, and... You know, we didn't have access to so many things because I remember as a kid reading Archie comics. You would you would read all these comics, and you know, at the back of the comics there would be all these cool stuff that you could buy. Like whether it was Twinkies, I mean, Hostess Twinkies, it would be um, what were those? It was seahorses or something? Little seahorses. Oh, sea, would, sea monkeys. Yeah, sea monkeys. And, and and we as South African kids would look at these things and be like, whoa, look how cool these things are, because we didn't have access to them. And I think that exposing us to these things made us realize how how much we were being deprived of. And then, of course, you know, the sanctions on South Africa, then South Africa was not allowed to involve in the Rugby World Cup. And that really hit a lot of South Africans where it hurt the most. You know, you take this national sport, that there's so much pride in, and say you cannot be playing on the world stage, um, and that starts to eat away. And South Africans are saying, but we want to compete on the world stage. We want to have hostess Twinkies. We want to have this fashion, and we want to have these things that we see on these American shows. And all of that together, along with obviously the fact that the ANC, uh, their military wing in Conte Rosizwe, they were making the country ungovern- ungovernable at the time. But all of these things came together to get South Africa to the point where in the referendum they voted and said, yes, we, we think it's time to end apartheid. And I don't think any of them worked in isolation, but certainly altogether, definitely. Can you remember how old you were when you first became aware of, like, American hip-hop? Did that make its way to South Africa? Yeah, that must be when I was in high school. I would say I became aware of that sort of 13, 14 um, and, and that started to make its way. But long before then, I mean, the black artists who were huge in South Africa during apartheid were, it was Michael Jackson, uh, Whitney Houston, and Lionel Richie. I remember one of the first times I saw the word apartheid was on a CD that we had bought of Lionel Richie's. I think it was Dancing on the Ceiling. And he wrote at the bottom of it, Lionel Richie is opposed to apartheid. Ah. And we were like, yeah, what is that? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. That, you know, so, so these already were artists that were, you know, that were wildly popular in South Africa at the time. And then came hip hop and then, and then everything else. And there's a lot of South African music scene. Um, there's, there's, um, you know, Kwaito and there's, and, and there's other forms of South African music that then evolved from the American hip hop scene, et cetera. It's amazing to think that Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Whitney Houston, all, you know, some of our biggest superstars in America, uh, all three who were African-American, it's amazing that they had inroads um, in that culture at that time. 
hugely. I, I remember, I think I was in standard five, so in the US that would be the seventh grade. And for our final um, sort of concert, we could pick a song to sing, and we all chose Whitney Houston. Um, you know, there were so many other things we could have chosen, but we chose Whitney Houston. And remember, these are artists who were not touring in South Africa at the time. Um, I think one of the only artists I ever remembered seeing at Sun City was Laura Branigan. Oh, yeah. And I only heard years later that she got a lot of flack for it, for going to South Africa during apartheid. And it was only like a few years ago that I heard of the song, We Won't Play Sun City. I mean, yeah. this is not something as South Africans that we'd ever even heard of this song. See, that's so, so funny because I, I would have thought at the time it felt really seismic over here. And I remember thinking like, mm-hmm. oh, they must they must really be shaking in their boots in South Africa. But they just they just didn't let it come through. They just censored it. South Africans weren't hearing it. You know, um, the songs that were playing in South Africa that had any kind of political content were masked brilliantly, like um, Eddie Grant's Give Me Hope, Joanna. Yeah. We we danced to that all the time as kids. We loved it. We had no idea it was a political anti-apartheid song. You know, and clearly the censors didn't realize that either because that they let through. Um, but other things, definitely. We never heard We Won't Play Sun City. You know, if an artist came to Sun City, it was a big deal, but we didn't realize that they were viewed as pariahs in their own countries because they were coming through uh, to give concerts, etc. But, yeah, I, I would say every kid my age, like, knew all the words to Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, so it went. It's interesting. I, you know, I think Laura Brannigan, I just think she wasn't informed. I don't. I just don't think she knew and really understood um, the magnitude of like in the same way I was thinking like a similar situation is like with Lord uh, and Israel that thing that's going on right, right now right? right it's a very right. similar kind of thing um, but yeah. it really it just comes down to awareness and education doesn't it well yeah definitely and I also think as an artist if you big somewhere you know you want to go to your fans I mean I think that for her is what it was about she was big in South Africa she had this huge fan base she wanted to you know see her fans. I think modern talking came to South Africa as well. There were there were various acts that did it, and yeah, I don't I don't think for her it was, you know, it's not like she supported apartheid or whatever the case may be is, but um, yeah, I mean, pressure was put on a lot of these stars to not tour in South Africa, and 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 for a very good reason, and it was that kind of isolation again that contributed towards South Africans saying, okay, we we want to get back into the world now. We want to stop being the pariahs of the world. It's also an interesting moment because Laura Branigan was certainly not a political artist at all. And she sort yeah. of, by default, got dragged into a political situation, um, which is kind of yeah. it's that intersection where art and politics sometimes have to combine and cross yeah. each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, these days, I think artists are much more aware of these things. You know, they are much more aware of these political boundaries but like you say with Lord sometimes you know these these things happen but um, I, I mean like look at uh, Rodriguez look how big he was in South Africa and the man didn't even know it right Right, which yeah. which makes me think the South African government. Here's what they did: they they filtered everything in and they censored what they wanted. And then if something got big there, they wouldn't even let the people know who were big, who weren't from that country, that they were doing so well there. Well, yeah, and I think everybody was you know illegally copying Rodriguez's music, so the man never got any kind of you know 
payment for it, etc. Everyone I knew somehow had a copy of his songs, but I don't think any of them were original. Um, and again, because South Africans were so isolated, how would he have known? How would he have known he was so big there? It's amazing. You know, South Africa had a really tight seal on what was coming through and what, and what wasn't. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, and then, that's how, yeah, that's how you control people. Yeah, and it, and it certainly worked for the time period. You know, for the time period, it worked. For, for the longest time. For, for the, the longest, longest time, it, it worked. And, um, you know, I remember finally in high school, I think it was 1993, so it's before apartheid officially ended, uh, that we started looking in English class at things like propaganda and, you know, looking at um, political cartoons and and being able to interpret news that was not, you know, uh, that, that wasn't doctored in some way and that didn't have an agenda. And I remember to something it took me the longest time to be able to look at and to be able to discern it because for so long you read the news, you just assume the news is impartial, you just assume that what you're reading is a fair account of it, and then when you slowly start comparing it to news that is fair and factual, you start to realize um, you know, how, how slanted it is and, and, and how it's completely one-sided. It also teaches you how to be discerning and think independently. Well, yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of South Africans of that time battled with, very much battled with. Um, you know, I remember going to university and suddenly having to, to use your discernment and, and to be able to look at things um, and think independently. But up until then, we'd been fed the answers for so many things. And it was extremely difficult then to suddenly switch your brain from sitting and being asked a question and waiting for them to tell you the answer to you having to figure out the answer yourself. Um, and, and I think, for me, that was a huge part of my process to becoming a writer. You know, I look at young writers today, and it absolutely blows my mind that there are writers who are 25, 26, putting out amazing work that it you know that's winning awards and selling so many copies and I couldn't imagine myself at the same age um, having something to say and saying it so eloquently and and that definitely you know I think where I came from stunted my intellectual growth in so many ways that it took many many years much longer for me to get to the point where I was able to write about something than, than what young people are today so it sort of made you a, a late bloomer just because yeah. of, where, of by 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 geo, terms of geographical location only. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly feel that for me, obviously, can't speak for all South Africans, but definitely, definitely for me, you know, I um I I couldn't say that I had these strong opinions either way about something, or or that I had the courage of my convictions to write anything um, of value at that age because it was still trying to untangle myself from from this way of of being raised in this in this way of thinking now did oprah get on board for hum if you don't know the words unfortunately not um it, it's still out with a few uh producers with a few production companies uh, i was very very lucky that oprah magazine endorsed hum brilliantly they gave an absolutely amazing review which is going on the cover of the paperback, which comes out in March. Um, but, you know, in terms of the movie, I, I, I firmly believe somehow that this will become 
uh, a film at some point because I just, I don't know, I, I just feel it's something that needs to be put out there. It's something that needs to be on the big screen. I've never seen the Soweto Uprising done in a film. Um, and it's something that I think would be extremely, extremely compelling. Um, yeah, you know, Harper Productions came back and they said that they had something similar that they'd already signed, but that they would keep an open mind if, if we got a big name on board. So for now, it's out of a few companies and, 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 you know, keeping everything crossed and we'll see. You never know. I think it would be a remarkable movie. Thank you. <laughs> I do. I really do. I, uh, I do. Um, yeah. It's such a remarkable book. Talk to me about where you're at with the new stuff, because I know that you you just put you just finished a new a new book. Right. So I uh, was hoping to do a sequel to Hum, because to me the story is very very far from over. But at the same time, I do realize that Hum will need to get a much bigger readership. Uh, in order to warrant a sequel for this kind of genre, especially one that's so reliant on a reader reading the first book. So I sort of put my sequel aside and I started working on another book. It's also based in South Africa, but it takes place, it starts on the eve um, of Nelson Mandela's presidency, just as the elections occur. And it takes you through South Africa's birth, um, you know, rebirth from, a, from this apartheid government to what was called the Rainbow Nation, um, to its democracy. It looks at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and also the onset of the HIV-AIDS pandemic in South Africa. Um, so a very tumultuous time, but also a very positive time in South Africa's history. That is the historical backdrop to the story. Um, it, it's just a backdrop. And then you have these three female characters. I don't know why I just like female characters. <laughs> it's, it's not like I ever sit down and go, this is going to be a feminist book. Uh, but th- these are the stories I'm attracted to. And and the one um, black character uh, is in a squatter camp in South Africa. She's, she's 17 years old and living in this absolute poverty in a shack in South Africa. Um, and, and it's about her struggle and, and then the struggle of these women and how their lives come together. So I've just finished the first draft of that. I have to hand it in to my publisher next month. Um, and that's called If You Want to Make God Laugh. So another wordy title again. I seem to choose <laughs> seven, seven word titles without meaning to. So that's that book. And then I, I almost feel that the, the things I've wanted to say about South Africa, I've now said. Between these two books, I very much feel that I've, I've said what I've wanted to say. Um, and I think after that, I'm, I'm probably just going to completely change genre. What genre are you thinking you might hop to? I'm thinking very much psychological thriller. These oh. are the books that I grew up reading. Um, I didn't read a lot of literary fiction at all when I was growing up. It's not something we had a lot of access to, probably because it was more political. Um, so I grew up you know, reading psychological thrillers, murder mysteries, etc., etc., and I think that's why in the books I write, I like to write a few twists and turns, things that will surprise the reader. Um, and, yeah, I might, I might try my hand at that. A very, very different genre. But I think I, I could have quite a bit of fun with it. How have you found the writing process? Are you able to write on the road? When I'm touring, I'm not able to write because that's just it's a crazy schedule. I mean, you land in the city at, like, 2, 3 o'clock the afternoon. You have an event at 7 uh, you get back to your room, you sleep, and at 6 o'clock the next morning, you're on the next flight. 
and and while I absolutely love it, um, I love being in front of readers. I love being with, with bookstores. I'm not someone who's energized by being around people. You know, um, I, I enjoy the experience, but I do end up getting drained from that a little bit. So I use all my energy when I'm touring for for the people, and I, I don't direct any of that into creative pursuits. So after touring is is when I write. And for the first book, I didn't have any kind of deadline. I mean, when you're when you're writing your first book, you don't have a publisher, you don't even have an agent. There's no deadline. There's no end in sight except what you you know make it. So, I mean, how much you don't know the words took me two years to write and then another year to polish. But with my second book, I sold it to the publisher based on the first three chapters and a synopsis. And then I had to write the book in less than six months. So my writing uh, process became a lot more regimented um, and structured than what it ever was. Uh, so I was at the point where I was writing sort of 3,000 words a day, which for me is quite productive. That's a lot of words. Are you more efficient now, do you think, than you've ever been? I definitely think so. I think you make so many mistakes with the first book. At least I did, because I'm not someone who plots their novels. You know, like J.K. Rowling fascinates me. I mean, I love her work, and she just plots everything, like every chapter, and she knows exactly what's going to happen where. But when I do that, I lose all interest in writing the novel. You know, I want... I engage with characters. I want these characters to become like people. I want them to become fully formed, and I want to see where they're going to take me. Um, so because I don't plot, I end up writing myself into a lot of dead ends, uh, and then you've got to come back and you start again. So the first book, I made a lot of mistakes, silly things, and just had to keep rewriting it. I mean, that book was rejected 100 times and rewritten probably 30, 40 times before it was published. I feel that with the second book, um, I had a lot more confidence. I knew, you know, what to avoid, how to do things, how not to do things. Um, and, I, and I definitely feel it was a much more efficient process this time. Um, and I feel like I owned it more than, than the last one. Well, Bianca, thank you for doing this. I love talking to you in person. and I love talking to you on the phone. Uh, this is a really great chat. Oh, it was wonderful. And thank you so much for letting me be on your show. She's one of my favorite people, and she's one of my favorite writers. Bianca Murray, get Hum If You Don't Know the Words in paperback or hardback, whatever you want. But now you can get it in paperback. The choice is yours. Whatever you think will look good on your bookshelf, whatever you think will feel best in your hand, grab a copy of that book. Okay? Go to your bookstore. Have them order it. Don't, don't do it through Amazon. Can I just say that? Just support, support those bookstores out there. I know Amazon's easy. I get it. I do it too. But uh, support a bookseller. Support someone who runs a shop. Okay? All right. And thanks for supporting us here at Bombshell Radio. We appreciate it. Uh, You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast, on iTunes as well. And nothing's stopping you from leaving a nice comment, right? You uh, You can find something kind to say. We'd appreciate it. We really would. We appreciate you listening to our radio station. We are on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I believe my math is correct. Uh, It should check. Uh, 
Uh, we are Bombshell Radio. Go to bombshellradio.com to find out more about us, including upcoming events and our calendar. You want to learn more about me? Well, I appreciate that. AlexGreenOnline.com. Give it a give it a visit. Okay. All right. Hey, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.